Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Care Centers, you'll get a $75 prepaid Visa card when you spend $250 on Napa brake parts, which is cause to celebrate. Because normally the sound of screeching brakes means your bank account's about to take a hit. But getting $75 back makes that hit not so bad. Quality parts installed by the pros. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Care Centers. Exclusions apply. Offer ends 6 It's a good show. This is Lisa Denio from Candy Pants, and you're listening to Radio 8 Ball with Andras Jones. Welcome to Radio 8 Ball. Give us a shake. We're in the studio, tempting fate With Jeffrey Gaines Putting questions to the songs Which we will randomly select here With the help of our friend Synchronicity And now it's time for Radio It Ball Give us a shake Jeffrey Gaines, it's the Radio 8 Ball Radio 8 Ball Show It's the Radio Oh, oh, oh It's the Radio 8 Ball Show And welcome back to Radio 8 Ball The show where we answer questions by picking songs at random And interpreting those randomly chosen songs as the answers to the questions, like picking musical tarot cards, I am your host, Andras Jones, and we are joined in the studio by Jeffrey Gaines. What's happening? And he is providing the oracle fodder for our musical divinations, and every uh, one of these musical divinations is initiated by one of our guests, and the guest for this pop oracle, I guess, session, this little podcast is a representative of the Wild Honey Foundation. Welcome to Radio 8 Ball, David Jenkins. Thank you very much, Andres. We we talked about earlier in the show, Wild Honey puts on some of the most exciting, I certainly the most exciting tribute shows that I'm aware of in terms of gathering artists who themselves could potentially be tributed, all working together to tribute people who they consider to be you know, I guess the foundation of the music that we love so much, if that's a fair assessment. No, I think that, that that's a pretty fair assessment, yeah. Be, but tell us a little bit more about uh, this organization and your role in it. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll try and be succinct, although I am prone to, uh, to being verbose, but uh, I guess that's why they have editing. Um, I met uh, my, my partners in it. Uh, one of them is a guy named Paul Rock. It's actually his real name. And Paul was a, uh, a counter manager at the uh, Aaron's uh, Records location on Melrose, where I frequented, oh, and yeah. we became friends. Paul moved out here in the 80s to kind of work in the movie business, and was a huge Beach Boys fan all his life and wanted to escape the Midwest and got to California. And we started talking, and we became friendly, talking about music. And I'd already met, a few years prior, I'd met Andrew Sandoval. I also met him at a record store. He's a California native, Santa Monica, born and bred, and... Uh, a huge music nut. Andrew and I were already friends. He met Paul about a year, a couple years later. Andrew was playing gigs. We just all go shows together. And then Paul was renting a house um, with two friends of his in uh, Hancock Park, and they had a usually large living room and faced a street with traffic, so there was no issue with noise. And 
two of the roommates were musicians, and they said, hey, we should get together and play some songs. A couple of people came over and um, kind of turned into a, a nice casual thing, um, started having some other friends show up, and then it kind of turned into one night, seemingly, we had 100-something people in Paul's living room with a drum kit and amps and a PA system and a bunch of people playing Beach Boys songs, including uh, we had just met uh, Darian and Nick of the band Wonderments. Oh, what a um, band. What a who, band. Who have, for the last 18 or 19 years, have been the core of the Brian Wilson touring band. But back then, they were just guys that knew another guy we knew uh, named Dominic Priori, who's a longtime kind of California musical historian. And particularly of the Beach Boys. Particularly of the Beach Boys yeah. and the surf scene, yeah. And he um, had them come to this thing at Paul's, and it's just kind of a religious collection. Also, our friends. Mike and Rusty from the band Baby Lemonade, who spent many years backing up Arthur Lee as the last version of Love. They're huge Beach Boys fans, too. And interestingly enough, they had recorded a cover of Wind Chimes on an EP. Darian had recorded a, a, a then-unreleased song of Brian's called Do You Have Any Regrets, which was from what people refer to as Sweet Insanity, his second mm -hmm. unreleased solo album from the late 80s, early 90s. So it's just a coming together of people with similar tastes and interests, realizing that there was a way to kind of share it and there wasn't any grand scheme but it went from a couple of acoustic guitars to full band in a living room to thinking about a place maybe we should do this a little more big time which for us was making a leap from someone's living room to a 200 seat community theater in santa monica and called the morgan wixon and what year was the was the first one that, that was be, at, that was in a theater yeah that would be 1993 we did uh, a tribute to the birds um, and we had a really interesting mix of people. Um, our friend Carla Olson, who had performed a lot with Gene Clark later in his career. Also, we had uh, Vicki Peterson and Michael Steele from the Bangles. And uh, the cool thing about it was that it was a community theater that had this huge stage, huge backstage area, grand piano, but very shallow audience uh, area, only 200 <laughs> seats, so very intimate. And, uh, I mean, really just like 50 more seats than you'd have playing at McCabe's or at a... The coffee house, but that first show really sort of, you know, had something magical. And, you know, I think we charged $8, which uh, the joke was that will, what was the cost of parking at the House of Blues at the time. So it seemed like we were offering a good deal. And we just did it, you know, the, the early events we did for different charities for Sweet Relief, for Habitat for Humanity. But the next thing, which is sort of, I think, where we made our mark for a lot of people is that we did, as Paul has had a lifelong. Um, interest obsession with the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, um, hence the name Wild Honey, which comes from one of his favorite Beach Boys albums. Um, we did an evening of Brian Wilson. Again, we had done one earlier, of course, at his house. And with this one, through kind of Darian was, you know, friendly with this guy, David Leaf, who had worked a lot with mm -hmm. Brian um, uh, in the, you know, kind of redirection of his Oh, I, I, it's hard It's hard to describe the scenario exactly how it came up. I just know that David was very instrumental in getting the word to Brian that there were people doing something that was saluting him, very grassroots and local. It wasn't a big deal, you know, in terms of a big show business thing. It was just like, these guys are really committed fans who were trying to do a good turn for, we were doing it for sweet relief. So two things happened at that that were pretty incredible. The first one was that, um, of course, we, you know, through David, we got um, Brian Wilson to participate, which got confirmed fairly close to the actual show. Yeah. And Brian had a group that had um, uh, Andy Paley, his producer and co-writer, and I think Andy's brother, and also had Billy West, who does a lot of the voices for 
Brandon Stempe, and then uh, Elliot Easton from The Cars on lead guitar, um, who we'll be working with again in a couple of days at another event. But what was interesting is that we, through another friendship with uh, Ben Vaughn, um, he gave us Alex Chilton's phone number because we knew that Alex was going to be in town, and we thought... We know he's a big, you know, Brian Wilson guy, big Beach Boys fan. It's like, it'd be really cool to get Alex to play at the show. And then we went to, and again, this all stems out of being fans. Andrew and Paul and I had gone and we'd driven up months earlier up to the Fillmore gig that Big Star had done. And then they didn't play. That's you know, the Big Star with the Posies? That was with Ken and John from the Posies and, and Alex and Jody. And um, they played a gig at the Fillmore and they did one in Chicago. And then they came to L.A. like, right around the time that our thing was happening. So we went to the gig and um, Paul had already spoken to Alex on the phone a couple times and explained what we were doing. And Alex was, you know, kind of a classic Alex Schultz. He goes like, well, you know, I have plans to go see my uncle down in San Diego. I don't know. It's like, well, you know, Brian Wilson's playing. He goes like, yeah, I know it's interesting, but I've got plans. It's like, okay. So then we go talk to him after his show reiterate that it is really happening brian's confirmed he's going to be there he goes like yeah well i, I don't know i just don't think i can it's like okay so you're, well you know listen another dream maybe someday but hey we've got brian wilson the night of the show or we already have had the experience of brian showing up i think in a limousine with rodney bingenheimer and they get up there and like there's hundreds of people lined up to get into the show and they're all you know plotting brian and he walks in and says i don't understand you know why are all these people out here it's like they're all here to see you, Brian. And he says, but they don't know me. No one knows who Brian Wilson is. They just know the Beach Boys. And we looked at Brian and was like, everybody knows who you are. He goes <laughs> yeah. like, really? He's like, well, I guess I better get in there. I think they're already rehearsing. It's like, yes, they are. It's like, time to get in. And then a few minutes later, Alex comes to the door and was like, oh, hey. He goes like, so listen, I'm going to do this thing. It's like, um, I need to go get a... I need to go back to McCabe's and get my guitar. If my friends in Teenage Fan Club show up, I told them about it. You just let them in? It's like, yeah, no problem. And we're looking at each other like, okay, it's on, right? Yeah. So that happened. And it was, you know, it was a, it was one of those moments where if I played you back the audio maybe of what happened that night, it might not be as amazing as the feeling in the room, yep. which is that Brian at that point had not performed any kind of real solo gig, you know, he was still technically sometimes obligated to perform Beach Boys shows. He and Mike Love were involved in a very high-profile lawsuit about songwriting, and he had just recently started his relationship, I guess, with Melinda, who was there, but also Brian's ex-wife was there. It was like, it was one of those nights where all these things coalesced, and I, 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 I can't emphasize enough that it's all just sort of timing and happenstance and friendships and things there was no master plan synchronicity and it is actually that is where brian actually heard darian and nick and those guys did a whole amazing like suite of the smile material wait so that was the first time that darian yeah. played his stuff for well, played brian wilson stuff for brian wilson brian was i believe aware of darian doing a, a single of his early yeah. song through david leaf and he had been told about there were these guys just you have to yeah. imagine. You have to imagine I, too that there's probably been many people over the years that Brian's been told about. Right. They're guys that know everything about you. They're great singers. They're great songwriters. But at that point, it's like, well, they're not going to join the Beach Boys, and there is no Brian Wilson thing to join. 
because there nothing existed. He was just right. a guy adrift a little bit without anything really happening. And but, those guys, and Darian and Nick, are special. They're, oh, they're, and not not just them, their whole crew that's around right. them, Probe and Gregory and all that. that and, and, yeah. that's, and that's what it was. It was their amazing drummer, Mike D'Amico, Probe and Gregory, their whole thing. So they did this amazing presentation, but, I mean, we also had, you know, Victoria Williams performed Sail on Sailor, and, mm. you know, it was, it, was, it was a really amazing night. A lot of great stuff happened, but the thing that was really cool is that there was this great moment um, with Brian and Alex Chilton, where I, I know they had met many, many years before, but had not seen each other a long time, and they're backstage, and so you have to imagine the state of Brian Wilson in 1994 is, Brian is, you know, he's pounding Diet Cokes, he's chain-smoking, he's really nervous, he and Rodney are hanging out, Alex is talking to Brian, and we're just, and then there's like a guy, some friend of Brian's is videotaping everything he does, like he's sort of like making his own B-roll constantly <laughs> of just whatever Brian's doing. And we're standing there, and Brian and Alex Chilton are talking, and they're talking about records and touring. And Brian was like, "So you got to tell me, you know, like how, you know, how they get your voice to sound like that on the on, on the letter? On the letter? Is that a trick? <laughs> like a Phil Spector trick?" He goes like, "Come on, Brian, you know Phil Spector didn't produce that record." He's like, "I know, but I love that record. It's great." And the thing is that all Brian could really relate to about Alex was that Alex was the guy that sang the letter, and he was in the box tops. Like I think he knew that they toured with the Beach Boys after Brian's time on the road, that he was friends, you know, Alex was friends with Carl and Dennis and that whole other, you know, I mean, it was like living with Dennis for a little while or something at one point after the box tops kind of split up. So there's that whole element, but Alex is just incredibly delighted, like a little kid hanging out with Brian Wilson. And um, later, you know, I met Peter Jesperson, who used to manage the replacements. You know, all these people have been on. So many of these people have been on the show. This yeah, is great. And, I love this and, family and Peter, feeling. Peter came up to me in line. I was with Andrew and our friend Michael Ackerman, who's part of the um, Wild Honey organization. And Paul, we were all in line to go to this event. And he said, you're the guys that did that Brian Wilson thing? It's like, yeah, we are. He goes like, I just want to tell you, it's like, I sat there that night and I watched Alex Chilton look at Brian Wilson. And it's exactly the same way that Paul Westerberg looked at Alex when we all had dinner together. It's like, don't ever forget that everybody's a fan of somebody else. And I, and I, it stuck with me because the only way that we've ever been able to accomplish any of the stuff we've done is because we're all fans. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it couldn't be more opposite from professional show business <laughs> if you tried. And, you know, the, I suppose the next most notable thing that we did was uh, we did an evening of the Kinks and a friend of ours, um, Howard Crumholtz, who was one of the managers at Tower Sunset, along with our buddy Jim Laspiza, who's a drummer and uh, part of the Wild Honey thing. Jim worked at Tower as well. And Howard, I guess, had grown up or gone to high school with Nancy, Dave's ex-wife. So he'd said, hey, you're doing this Kinks thing. It's like, I'm going to talk to Dave's wife. It's like, he should play at it. And we're like, yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> and so we put together a band, which was myself and Jim, Andrew Sandoval, our friend Brian Kehu, Danny Magoo, a guy named Matt Letterman Brian on guitar. And, awesome. and the thing was is that we... We rehearsed without Dave. We, like, we were told by his wife, he'll want to play these songs. You need to get him a guitar with eight, you know, to 38-gauge strings. You got to cut out and the... Mesa boogie, the <laughs> and a Mesa Boogie the, amplifier. We're like, okay, yeah, we can do all that. And then he showed up the afternoon of the show. And and already with that show, the other thing that was hilarious was that we went back to the Morgan Wixon because, well, we figured this is safe. You know, it's like, we just have to sell 200 tickets, right? Even though... And, you know, again, we didn't have any connection to, oh, well, how would you book something at a bigger place? It's like, because nobody really wanted to open it up to, oh, you're doing a charity thing. Right. 
well, I still have to charge you $3,000 for this room, right? Mm-hmm. So we um, we got the Plimsolls to play, but we didn't know that was going to happen. It was just going to be Peter Case. And then he had just recently started warming up to the idea of working with, with the, the Plimsolls, Plimsolls again. again. Oh, my so God. So he called up and said, like, well, so what if I do this Kinks thing and we do it as the Plimsolls? Because, you know, uh, we got a guy from the Jim Blossoms going to play drums with us because, you know, we can't, we don't have our old drummer anymore. We're like, yeah, no problem. So even even separate from the whole Dave Davies is playing a gig at a theater in Santa Monica, it was like we could have sold that place out three times over just with the Plimsolls reuniting, right? So then that happens. We meet Dave at the sound check, walks in wearing an X-Files T-shirt, goes like, oh, hey. And it's like starts playing with us, and we're just like, "All right, like this is total. This actually is happening." And we were all lifelong fans, but it's like, well, you know, if you build it, like, you're, yeah, it's gonna happen, right? It's, they'll come. So, again, that happened, and it's just one of those things that's like only because somebody knew somebody was like, "Hey, these guys are cool. You should do something." So, we obviously had a reputation building, but we never really, you know, we didn't have a master plan about what to do with it. So we did a few more of these things over the years for different, you know, worthy organizations. Drop some, you don't have to tell the whole stories, but the artists yeah. that you were doing, like... So, so we did, so, you know, Brian Wilson, The Birds, um, Kinks. We did an Everly Brothers night uh, based around mm. the box set called Heartaches and Harmonies that Andrew had compiled and produced for Rhino. And that actually had um, amazing performance from a band that people should really check out, no longer existing, unfortunately. A band called The Blue Shadows, which was a guy named Jeffrey... Hatcher and uh, Bill Cowsill, mm. who had long ago uh, lived, moved up north, and they had a band that was like the perfect blend of British Invasion, like Searchers type music with Everly's harmonies. Like you couldn't, I mean, those guys sat and played, you know, Everly Brothers, like early, you know, 50s Everly Brothers songs. And I, we had Jason and Eden Everly, you know, you know, sons of Phil and Don, Dave Alvin, the Williams Brothers, Billy Swan, all these people sat like mouth open, jaw-dropping, watching the Blue Shadows sound exactly like a 50-year-old Everly Brothers record, like they'd been doing it their whole lives. And we you know we also did an evening of the Hollies, which was based around a, a record called Sing Hollies in Reverse, which right. is a tribute record that had you know, John, John Bryan, Bryan and uh, Material Issue and Posies, and it's actually the first track that Andrew ever put out was a cover on that. And again, it was like, just all outgrowth. I was like, well, here's this cool thing. It's like, we should do something to like help make it happen. You know, the, there was a band called the Jigsaw Scene that was very involved in the Hollies mm-hmm. compilation. They also played on the Kings thing. It's just all this collective of people who were fans of the same things, who had had X amount of years of experience doing whatever. The, the outgrowth, you know, uh, two years later from the Dave gig was that he came back into Tower of Sunset, talked to Jim and said, Hey, you fancy getting together again and doing something? We're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> we didn't know at the time that he had a tour booked and needed a band because I guess the initial idea was that he was going to go out with the Smithereens, but that wasn't exactly worked out or wasn't going to happen as in they weren't doing their own set. It was just like right. he wanted to have the band, but not the whole thing. So we ended up, Andrew and Jim and I, we ended up becoming Dave's band and did that for a while, um, much in the same way that, like- you know, the Brian Wilson thing happened for Darian yeah. and, and Nick. It was just sort of like, well, you put two things together and you put somebody in the orbit of this is happening. I like can just it, check bury my way into this, just walk exactly, into it with yeah, my and sure, plug yeah. it in and All you gotta these do guys is just show up and know the tunes, right? And so, I do what I do, that's great. Yeah. So we kind of built it up to doing I mean we did a full presentation of Pet Sounds and Friends at the El Ray Theater with Matthew Sweet and we had, you know, this huge band with DJ Bonebreak and a bunch of amazing musicians. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I wanna Sorry. No, 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 you're great, but I wanna like 
uh, I'm going to yeah. forward the conversation Please. a couple times. So when uh, there are two parts of it that I'm really curious about, as someone who's watched it evolve from outside. Okay. One is when did the Wild Honey Orchestra become a thing? Because that seems like that's now a big part of these events. Is that you have this crew of all these people who right. are have have like you're talking about like. Right. That uh, are in all these other bands that have mm -hmm. been all that have maybe have grown up inside of it. They're these heavy, heavy cats, right. and now they are the house band. Well, you know, like Rockestra or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of like that. I mean, it, the thing that's funny is that we, in the what I call Wild Honey 1.0, which would be like 93 to 2001 or 2000, 93 to 2003, basically a decade. We did. We had a core group of musicians that seemed to play at a lot of the shows and would play together, but we used to have also more like standalone bands. But we realized that to have ease of changeover and more of a consistent approach, instead of having swapping it out every couple songs for a whole other group of people, it would be easier to have a core group of people that would kind of back up the different singers, and then you could slot in a different guitarist or a different keyboard player. And so we naturally went to you know kind of the folks we knew. So Jim Laspisa has been like a cornerstone foundation drummer, great vocalist, one of the most musical people I've ever met. He could sit behind the drum kit, tell you the chords of the song you're playing, tell you how it's voiced right or wrong, tell you the harmonies off. You're doing a third, you shoot a fifth. He's, he's amazing. <laughs> and he has been a part of every show we've done. And um, in more recent times, you know, the, the what, what happened was is that we took a break in 2003, not planning on one, but... The last show that we did in 2003 was our late friend Greg Dwinell was a guy who had an indie label called Egbert. And Greg had put mm -hmm. out uh, records by Christian Hoffman. He was very close to the guys in the band Dramarama. Mm -hmm. So he put out um, a, a rarities compilation by them. Greg is the guy who released the um, Bee Gees uh, compilation or Bee Gees tribute record. Um, that Jonathan and Dennis from the Jigsaw scene had compiled. He's also the guy that released the Hollies compilation. He was a big regular at Largo. He was a huge fan of John Bryan and Amy Manns, and it was very much a regular in that scene and you know knew all those folks. So the last thing that we did was um, Greg, unfortunately, was diagnosed uh, with cancer and was dying. He was terminally ill. There was not any going to be any happy ending to it. And he came to us and said, I want you guys to put together a night of my favorite Elvis Costello songs mm. sung by my favorite singers. Like, I oh. wanted to pick, he wanted to pick the singers as much as he could and, and sort of suggest, I'd like to hear them sing this song, right? So we we, we did it at the Knitting Factory. We The money went to the, uh, the cancer center at USC that was treating him. And so we were able to get, and this is a really funny thing because we, you know, we've never had much of any luck ever getting any artist to do anything by going through their manager or their publicist or the tr traditional means because it's those people's job to say no till something better comes along or something cooler gets, you know, in the way. I and mean, it's that's just reality of most people's careers, right? So, um, but because I had been friends, Andrew and I had been friends for years with Pete Thomas, who's Elvis's drummer. Uh, he's also, uh, also the drummer on Jeffrey, Jeffrey Gaines' new record. Drummer, yes, so. indeed. And yeah. so Jeff, uh, Jeffrey will appreciate this. So Pete um, was sort of like, well, no, so what are you talking about? And I was like, what do you mean? It goes like, well, you're not expecting me to show up. It's like, no, we don't want you to come and play drums all night for a bunch of people singing Elvis Costello songs. But 
who explained what the situation was. And so he understood and said, like, well, all right, that sounds that's like a worthy, you know, he, he got it. It's a mm-hmm. worthy cause. So Pete agreed to do something. We didn't even know what it was, but just he'll play on a song or two. Pete's daughter, Tennessee, had a band for many years called The Like, and they were still all in school. So, like, the idea of them doing a school night gig was a couple weeks negotiation with the manager and at least one parental unit of we really don't want them out late you know when there's you know it's yeah. like we, there's a limit to how much of this rock and roll stuff we're all tolerating even though we're all musicians too and but it was very important to greg to get them to play as was to get amy mann and michael penn john bryan um and the thing that was really I cool saw, uh, i remember and i, I was and you also yeah, paul had F, paul of tompkins was the compare and we actually had and something, lisa genio of the band candy pants I lisa jay and darian did something together sadly uh, mike and rusty were on tour they couldn't perform but rob Laufer, a, bu- a bunch of people that are still all part of our world were all you know part of it back then too the thing the two most hilarious aspects of this whole night were the fact that steve naive came to the show but didn't want to perform. He just wanted to watch it because he was curious because Elvis had gigs like two days after at UCLA. So, you know, the rest of the guys were in town that didn't, I mean, Elvis and Steve were in LA. The night before our gig, I found out later, Elvis and Amy Mann had dinner together with Flanagan, who owns Largo. Mm-hmm. And Flanagan was telling him about his friend Greg and he's dying. And Elvis was like, I can't go out the night before a show. And Amy's like, come on. It's like, she was actually trying to, I guess, get Elvis to come and watch this thing because... She was going to do the two songs they co-wrote together. Other End of the Telescope. And, and... Uh, World's uh, Great Optimist. Right. Right. And yeah. um, and she was the only person who played that night that could say, I'm doing a couple that I wrote. I mean, she didn't say it, but it's like we <laughs> right. all knew, right? So the thing that was really funny about that is that um, there was a, a comedy act uh, that played at Largo for years called The Naked Trucker yeah. T-Bones, which is, um, you know, Dave Gruber Allen and Dave Koechner, these guys who've been in like tons of movies and stuff. But this had this amazing comedy act. So... There was, you know, some. There were some people doing very serious, very reverent versions of Elvis Costello songs, as you might expect. I mean, we didn't impose any sort of do it like the record. Don't. Everyone's just like, look, Greg wants me to sing the song. It's like I want to do it. And so, while we're standing there watching somebody very passionately emote Allison and be very true to it, Pete standing next to me going like, oh dear, it's not going to be this for two hours, is it? I said, oh, come on. It goes like, let's get the naked trucker out there. So Pete goes to the back, and he's just practicing with these guys who are doing this, like, patchwork quilt version of um, Brilliant Mistake, <laughs> like unfurling the American flag and doing this whole thing. So Pete is totally into it. It's like, let's get the naked trucker on. So he's just excited to go play with these guys who do <laughs> comedy. It's like, and that's the thing that once you get to know Pete, you understand that his sense of humor and his irreverence towards things is, I've had many opportunities to be in the recording studio with him and to even do a couple gigs he really makes it happen because he's got this mischievous like it's like a little kid you know he just he's got this great sense of humor and he imparts it into his playing and also into the um just to the social aspect so that show was really memorable for that and greg got to see it before he died so sort of like we game you know game successfully completed for everybody but that same year i met the woman that i later married and I'm still married to Paul Rock met the woman he ended up getting married to they were about to have a child so everyone's life was going through some big changes and the idea of continuing to do these shows a couple times a year is just like you know maybe 10 years maybe we should take a break so that's the end of part one and then but so forwarding it 
Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't want to monopolize. No, 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 no. This is like I sometimes we get an opportunity to have a little bit of a history lesson. I think it's really important. Yeah. But I but so I'm just going to keep forwarding it. Believe me, there's a there's a huge synchronicity about that Elvis Costello show. You're telling me a story right now that it's one of those things that I wish I could just unpack right now, but maybe another time. And I do want to have you back on the show because I feel like there's a million stories we could tell. Hey, I know where the the studio is now, so it's easy. Yeah, so the the last part I want to get into before your question is that there there is now, again, as someone who is – so I'm realizing now that I was aware of it at different points before I was aware of it, and now I'm much – I'm aware of it in a different way. And it seems like you have a very specific – charitable bent like you went from covering all these other different things right to now having one specific well, charitable bent yeah and, and what happened was is that a few years into his young life you know paul and his wife discovered that their son jake was exhibiting signs of you know um, of on the spectrum of autism issues and it became more and more pronounced and so that kind of became obviously the focal point of his life he was doing Script coverage and analysis for studios and agencies, but it's like pretty much his wife was a school teacher. He was working at home and taking care of their kid, and that became the focus. And I can't remember, sometime early in 2013, he had said that, um, you know, Jake was really responding to certain records. And when Paul was working, he would play records. And two records that Jake really loved were um, Rubber Soul and Sgt. Pepper. And those two records in particular were the records that his son really responded to. And so he had said, you know, what do you think about, like, doing a show? I was like, okay, yeah, that could be really cool. Let's get the band back together. And, and we had <laughs> and we had done something in Paul's backyard with our friends Peter Holzapple and Chris Stamey, which was a standalone thing, just to, they were promoting a record um, here and now. So, you know, the idea of, like, trying to do music stuff again, it's like, was all very much prevalent. And of course, you know, everyone's lives have continued to go on. And But we realized, you know, there's something here. And when you ask about the Wild Honey Orchestra, what it really came down to was, you know, when we looked at putting together, well, so let's do the show. So it's like, okay, we got to get Rob Laufer because he's got sort of the vast knowledge and the ability to corral all these different players, but he kind of commands the respect that you need to be the music director, band leader. Jim... Spiza was the obvious choice for drums. Jim's partner, Derek Anderson, who's played bass for years now in the Bengals, but has also got his own career, and he's played with the Smithereens. He's the bass player. Um, you know, we kind of filled in, like, from all the people that we'd had. But two things happened. Um, I had, in 2013, by that point, I'd been playing on Tuesday nights with Morty Coyle and the guys at the Kibitz Room to... The Fockers. We've talked about it a lot. One of their, their, actually, well, Morty's going to be on our next guest on the show. Yeah. And so I'd become friends with these guys from hanging out for years on Tuesdays. And it's kind of bringing a whole other (laughs) element in, in terms of, and this is something that we'd realized. So you're basically saying that that Morty and the guys helped fill out your orchestra. Well, yeah. We sort of had, like, the people that we'd had for years and some, like, relationships going back to forever. So, like, the first people we called to play was, hey, so we're going to do Sgt. Pepper and, uh, and Rubber Soul. So we call Vicky and Debbie Peterson, who said yes right away. It's never, all, they've always, you know, lend mm-hmm. a hand. They're just, they're big music fans. You know, they like going and singing. And, I mean, it's not hard to twist people's arms to go and sing Beatles songs, but they always, you know, say yes. And we had, I think, um, Jim Lespiza actually did some amazing, just on Facebook, actually. He pulled in just from, like, randomly going to people's pages and saying, hey, we're doing this thing. You might be interested. So we had... Um, this guy, Michael Lee Smith, who was the singer of the band Stars, uh, Ron Dante, who was the voice of the Archies, uh, Chuck Negron, 
from Three Dog Night. These are all people that Jim had never met, but he was just like connected with them on social media and said, there's this cool thing. And he explained a little bit of the history and like, this has happened and we've had this thing and that. And it's like, people are like, okay, that sounds cool. Like, <laughs> and the reason, you know, the, 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 the foundation was, it wasn't to do, it, the idea was not to do something specifically for Jake Rock, but what happened was, is that we, we found out about through Paul, this organization called the Autism Think Tank of New Jersey, which is based back East, but is a national organization that does a lot of uh, specialized treatment, like you know, sacrocranial healing, uh, music therapy. They had this camp that they sponsored. And initially the impetus was that Paul and Lisa wanted to send Jake to this camp for a week. So we thought, well, we do the show. It's like we could raise money to send Jake to this camp and maybe raise some awareness. Well, we booked a theater um, in North Hollywood that held 475 people. We sold it out right away. And we thought about moving the show, but we thought, well, let's just, you know, we'll do this one. So made enough money to send Jake and two other kids to the same camp, you know, so that happened. But what also happened is it cemented this relationship between the autism think tank and us and that they realized, you know, you guys really get what we're trying to do. And of course, there's a direct connection and that Paul is very invested in it. It's like the bridge concert kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in a way it is. And, and you know, we're obviously big fans of that too. And we've, you know, been to those and seen that. So um, the cool thing was, is that it started a relationship with them where they you know, kind of partners with us in, in making this yearly thing happen. But also, you know, we formalized our setup and we have a official California nonprofit status and all the, you know, correctly filled out tax forms and paperwork. So we can do things that, you know, are as other people do with charitable organizations, but because it's still so grassroots and low key, there's not any huge infrastructure. It's just, you know, the four of us and, you know, we have friends that help us out, but it's like, it's very easy to do something. So a couple years after doing, you know, things again, our friend John Wicks from the band The Records was really uh, hit um, hard by a very rare form of cancer diagnosis and you know his face was some insane medical bills and didn't really know if he was going to make it and so we said we got to do something for John Wicks and you know so we took a break from doing you know the autism thing but just the Wild Honey you know foundation we're going to make something happen for our friend so the Bangles agreed to perform as did some other friends of John's including Danny Lane and Peter Asher John Bryan who's a big fan of the records um, came the irony for anybody that knows John Bryan is that he would have come to the rehearsal the night before, but our um, our friend that was coordinating the musicians, he uh, had one digit off on his phone number. So John actually was sitting at home all night, not doing anything, and could have come to rehearsal, but then the next day actually blew off a film scoring session to come to soundcheck and play the gig, um, which is kind of perfect because he saw a bunch of people that he hadn't seen in years because mm -hmm. he's not really out, you know, much in the world he's like plays his monthly gig at Largo and does all his film stuff but he's not really out in the clubs anymore he certainly got caught up with everybody that night and it was the other thing that was great is that not an easy guy to book for Radio 8 Ball let me tell you no and well <laughs> unless you want to do a taping from like 9 at night till 8 in the morning then you could get him uh, but he I thought you were say unless you want to do a taping in 1998 in maybe, which case he, maybe he yeah, might time, time machine well here's the thing that's funny about that show so Peter Case performed again but we sort of specifically said would you mind doing some Plimsoll songs? He goes, no, of course not. I love John. It's great. So it's like we were in this room rehearsing, and it's like and he's playing a million miles away, and now everybody's just like, yeah. And it's like it's just when you see people get together to do something for a good purpose, you know, ultimately 
the outgrowth of all this stuff, and Morty can attest to this, and anybody that's been a part of it, is that musicians and performers, I think first and foremost, are all fans, and they all love music, or why else would you get into it? Because it's not, you know, it's there's no guarantee of anybody of ever making any kind of living at it or doing anything, but it's like you love playing, you meet other people who love what you love, you love talking about it, hanging out. The social aspect, the hang, the picture taking, the people exchanging information. I mean, in the 90s, you know, prior to the out, you know, to the outpouring of social media, there were bands that formed as a result of our shows just from people hanging out going like, dude, you know about that record? Here's my number, we should get here and play. And we saw several groups and friendships form just over the fact that people realized I don't feel so weird because I like the Hollies, or I don't feel strange because I know about this other band that so-and-so was in. So that's kind of, you know, the orchestra has expanded to, to, to the point where, I mean, sometimes we've had like 30 people on stage, but it's just what's appropriate to the music. Like we're doing this Buffalo Springfield thing Saturday at the Alex, and it's like our friend Caitlin Wolfberg, who's in charge of the string, she goes like, I need 10 string players. Okay, you make it work. We'll build a riser. We'll get you. It's like you need to have 10 pieces to play what you're doing. That's what we'll do because we're doing like a once in a year thing. I mean, yeah. people ask us, why don't you restage that? It's like if somebody could come in with the money to underwrite what it would cost to get those 30 people to get on a plane and go to New York. Yeah, I'd do it. <laughs> but so, OK, I think we've talked about all of the pieces that I really wanted to hit on. So we have the Buffalo okay. Springfield thing right. that's coming up. It's, yeah. I mean, the, the level, yeah. the, the levels of connection on this stuff. And actually, yeah. this is funny. This is sort of related to I mean, I, I, I had nothing to do with Jeffrey's record you know, the making of it or anything turned out about it, except for two very interesting conversations, which are weirdly enough an outgrowth of this whole, you know, collective. Um, uh, sometime last year, Val McCallum, who's the guitar player on, on Jeffrey's album, asked me, did I know the people at Omnivore Records? Did, did did I know if they understood music and, like, were they really music people? And what did I know about this guy, Chris Price? And I said, well... Chris has been a part of the thing I've been telling you about. You know, Val is aware of our shows, but he hasn't been able to participate because he's always touring with Jackson Brown or somebody. But he knows about it. I said, this guy, Chris Price, is amazing. You got to check him out. Just go online and get his music. He goes like, yeah. It's like, well, you know, there was some, you know, a connection where Val was going to be working with Jeffrey. And I just said, well, listen, you should try and get together with this guy because I think you would hit it off. And then separately, like, I don't know how much time later, Chris was like, yeah, so Cheryl and Omnivore wants me to work with this guy, Jeffrey Gaines, and, you know, he hasn't made a record in a while, but, you know, she's really excited about his new material. It's like, oh, that's funny. And it was like, I didn't, it's like, I wasn't arranging a marriage at all. It was just sort of like, independently, that was happening. But Pete played on a show with us where he saw Chris, he goes like, that guy's amazing. Like, you know, sort of like, who's this guy? It's like, he's growing. So where'd he come from? Well, he's like John Bryan, but he's even better. It's like, you know, it's like, yeah, he plays everything, and he's super talented. He's like John Bryan, but he plays his guitar all weird. And so the thing that's really funny is that it's like, you know, that access to things or that, you know, that weird circle where it's just sort of like you're in the orbit. I mean, it was going to happen anyways. Jeffrey had an amazing batch of songs. He had an opportunity to make a record. But I laughed because I said to Chris and Val separately, it's like, well, hey, that'd be great if it works out. And it turns out that they all had a great time making the record, which is what you hope for because the last thing you want is your friend to go like, Hey, man, I had to be in a studio for a week with that buddy of yours, and that's not, you know, like, I, I knew that wasn't going to happen, but I was really amazed at every one of those guys. I'm sure you've heard this, Jeffrey, but 
Pete and Davey and Val all said, blown away by Jeffrey. Val already knew him, and they worked on a record together before, which is where the connection was. But Pete and Davey were knocked out, and they were knocked out by Chris as well. So it's just like it's great to see that, again, these guys all have something amazing that they do. They all have this setup where it's like, hey, we're going to put you together, and you're going to you know, get on this life. You're going to go make this record, right? But, you know, without that common language of, oh, what do you, oh, okay, you got, it's like, that's the beauty of any situation where musicians can really congregate and get together and do something because so many, so much of it is in isolation. You know, you're out on a tour, just you and your buddy driving around the country, you know, you're interacting with the audience, but it's like, you don't have other people to play with sometimes, or it's like you sit and make a record at home in your bedroom. It's great. You can do it now in your kitchen on your phone, but there's nobody to feed off of. And doing these shows every year, when we put this, you know, big, you know, band back together, everybody's, you know, they see each other, of course, during the year, but it's like that experience of like, we're going to sit in this room. One of the bass players that's guesting, our friend Jen Oberly said, this is amazing, but it's like, I have like other gigs and sessions, like I can't be at all your rehearsals, but I've got it. I'll be at a couple. She's like, you guys just get together and play this stuff all the time. And it's like, that's kind of how we do it. She's (laughs) like, that's... like no one really does that it's like i know because this isn't like a regular gig most people would just say here's your four songs chart it out okay we'll see you at nine o'clock it's like that's the way most things work most people don't get together every night for a week at a big studio and have a pizza party and sit there and just talk about you know whatever's going on but that's part of what makes it special you know and i believe that fancy Fancy Pants tickets go out to people who can actually attend those. Yes, the last couple of years we have, we're not above selling the VIP uh, yeah. experience. It certainly helps offset. There's some very heavy costs yeah, involved in staging COVID. these shows. You absolutely, it sounds like, it's like, I'm not saying that to make fun. I'm saying no, no, that like, I'm, I'm if of, I was listening, I'd be like, that's what I want. It's like, if I could pay... If I was like just a fan, I can pay an extra hundred bucks to hang out with to hear Darian well, and well, Morty talk and, about exactly. And here's the, the kinks other, or whatever. Here's the other yeah. side of that. It's like in the professional world, like you know, there's some this amazing show the last year or two called Celebrating David Bowie that Angelo Bundini um, puts together with all of like Bowie's old band members and guys like um, you know guys from Fishbone, you know, Angelo from Fishbone, and amazing singers. But it's like they have a company that organizes like the whole VIP package thing for their dress rehearsal and I joked with Angela I said like I'd love to come and see one of these because like I I can't because like we're selling those slots and it's like they have 19 right it's like whatever it is it's like I can't I can't even bring one guy in you know so I don't want what we do to ever get to the point where I can't call a buddy up and say hey man you're you know you can't make the gig come to the rehearsal at least see some of it there's still something about what we do that's still I'll text you or it's we're buddies right i don't ever want to lose that but obviously in the 25-year odyssey of going from dudes with acoustic guitars in the living room to 1400 seat theater with you know six foot drum risers and all that stuff it's like something has changed but we still manage to remain close you know musically and physically so i hope we don't lose that Cool. I hope that that's a good jumping off point for your question for the Pop Oracle. I hope it is, too, because I'm certainly all talked out from all this. Uh, well, the, the sh- this is actually where the, our format be- starts. Somebody better edit so, the hell out of this thing. All yeah, right, let's, uh, all let's get it's there. It's all really good history. It's great. So we got to ask your question. Oh, yeah. What is your question for the Pop Oracle? <laughs> I suppose driving over here, I was thinking about something. Um... What is the one song that encapsulates an artist 
best. There's a line that someone told me years ago. I don't know if it was Lou Reed's line, but he said, every artist has one song. Kind of that, I think what he may have been describing was they have, like, they keep refining their impetus or their initial, like, you could almost distill it down to this is Lou Reed or this is Leonard Cohen or this is Bob Dylan. Not not always. And, of course, there's writers that, you know, but I often wonder, it's like, what is the one song that can, you know, that defines or could explain an artist to somebody? So your question is? Which song tells your story the best? Which song tells your story the best? And I'd like now, to add. Yeah. The first song or the last song <laughs> the first to song, that question? The first Which song. one defines it? Because a, oh, lot I get people, it. a lot of people come out with, you know, maybe that's the one. That's the one that gives them a 30-year, 40-year career. So, and some artists answer it for themselves. You know, some people have careers that are so brief. Like, we'll never have to wonder if Buddy Holly made a bad record. You know, he only had X amount of years of making music. So it's all perfect because it's like, it's over before anything bad happens. You know, hmm. there's no bad big star record. Right. You know, it's like, it's all great because that's just this. So what is the song that defines an artist? Okay. And now to engage the pop oracle, I'm going to spin, I'm going to have you spin the wheel of eight. Na, 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 na. We love eight. Give it a spin. And it is song number one. Feel all right. From Jeffrey Gaines. What do I sound like here? I won't come around your place no more I won't be outside your bedroom door I won't burn your playhouse down yet Never want to see How you like making sure that you feel yeah, no right, yeah. So I go quietly into the night to the dark place deep down out of sight. I watch you thrive while I fall from view. This work I do Making sure everything's how you like Making sure that you feel Yeah, no right, no right, yeah All
I'll be fine, go on and start anew Leave me to tidy up this mess for you I stand here until the endless die Bury them deep down so you may fly Making sure everything's how you like Making sure that you feel alright That you feel alright That was Feel All Right from Jeffrey Gaines, a song that I uh, I'm, I mistook as Feel Alight. But even that still still feels like there's something in there, alight and all right. And it's, it's, but anyway, that was the answer to your question, David Jenkins, about okay. uh, what is the song that, that defines an artist. So let's allow the artist to define the song for a moment. This is the title track from your new record which we were yeah. talking about. So already there, there's some nice synchronicities. And you want to tell us a little bit about, and again, a, 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 this quality that I'm loving about your songwriting, there's always this core of you, and then here's this whole other prism, a whole other, a whole other way of using your voice. It's into, like you say that songwriters write the same song, in a word, like are writing the same song. Well, if Jeffrey, if you're writing the same song, then you keep putting these other masks over them these other putting it in these other cloaks or something so they do not feel at all like the same song although definitely the same artist but uh can you tell us a little bit about where that song like some something about the origin of that song oh you know that's um that's letting her go on with her life and uh you know i think of it as a crime scene uh this song i think about uh <laughs> you know uh, an affair um that had a really good run just a, an amazing stealth underground run for years. And uh, at some point, you know, everybody's got to grow up. And they're like, look it, um, I'm going to take the big bite into uh, a more conventional reality that my parents will be happy and proud about. So uh, I got to go. And I'm like, yeah, don't you worry about it. I'll take care of it. I got the shovel. I got the lime. Mm-hmm. We will uh, put all of this, all the traces of... <laughs> All the traces of this stuff. Uh, it's what I, and then I realized how, how good at it I had become throughout my life, always being, uh, uh, you know, in the, to, to, to pull some any trouble reference, but always, you know, being second choice. I got really good at, uh, you know, uh, letting people get on back to their lives after they've had experiences and, and, and all the most profound, but um, just can't put me into uh, the conventional realm. So, you know, it's just like that song is just about, yeah, don't you worry about it. I got this. I do this, in fact. I'm finding out that I do this. And you know what? If we ever meet in an elevator, no one will know the why. My heart rate won't go up. And, you know, so the song is just about the cover-up. And, you know, um, because it's my gift of love to just do whatever you ask of me. Anything to make sure that you feel all right. 
If you can sleep with it, if you can sleep at night, I absolutely can't question it. I can take care of it. So it's a it's a big boy song. For I like big it. Boy experience. I like it. It's a grown up. It's an <laughs> it's an, an adult song. Yeah, but uh, ultimately, um, it, I didn't know that that's what I was writing. Um, I think um, my interest uh, was to be on a huge stage, and that I had the guitar riff, and I thought be awesome to sing to an audience and just for the whole just for the whole feeling of making sure everything's how you up in the balcony and down in the front row making sure that you feel all right, like oh, lighter now i'm and, feeling the springsteen again that sense oh, of like yeah. that kid in the back you know on a so i want to uh, put yeah, the person I, in the back i wish i knew more about him to know that that's a thing but that's you know but uh, just uh it's that's that is the spirit yeah. a lot of the spirit that that like People who love his music, right. so like that sense of like I am going, I'm going to make sure that like I'm responsible for you. Yeah, I'm well, there. Yeah. yeah, I mean it more in a rock fantasy way. I don't actually mean. See, I think Bruce <laughs> is very sincere and actually means what he says. In I want to make sure. Yeah, I just mean like in a sweet or a cheap trick kind of <laughs> yeah. way. I want you know to bubblegum kind of. I want you to feel like. I want to feel like a stage magic, but I'm not really. Don't really. I'm not really gonna be there i mean it's in a rock way i'm gonna be there you know yeah. so i was seeing more of a rock and roll fantasy version of making sure everybody all concerts all concerts the worst thing that ever happens at all concerts and it's been going on since i've ever i mean since the big concert globe ball and the and the rasta music in between and the smoke waiting for the next band uh as soon as they take the stage the first like three minutes of the the act takes the stage they they ask a question and then answer it. And I always thought that was hilarious. They go, everybody, how's everybody, you feel all right? And then they go, how's everybody feel? You feel all right? They, like, yeah. answer it. And I'm like, it's it's just, like, sort of a psychological sort of telling them before they even ask, are they feeling all right? It's just like a, you know, they, they you kind of, yes, you are. And here's, they put you in, a, like, a mode of, okay, yes, we're having fun. And I just thought that was hilarious. The concerts would do that. People just, like, a cadence. Yeah. So I mean, I think it started there. Just like I, I just enjoyed the notes and the cadence of the the feeling that I was getting, singing "Feel All Right" as a chorus. Oh, and I like it. It's sort of like reclaiming yeah. that that sort of rock and roll invocation and making it real. Yeah. I love that. And then that's then the lyrics just took place because I mean they just happen because things. I I always tend to write about what's going on. Right. You know. So like unfortunately, you said, you're not. I it's not poetry. About, it's just journalism, like you said. Yeah. yeah. So poetically so, put. And yeah. Yeah. Hopefully. And exactly. So. So, David, how did you think about what you think about that as the answer to your question? I really like that answer to the question. There were two things that Jeffrey mentioned that I related to in a different way, um, and, I, and he can he can understand this too. You know, the for, for anybody that performs music on a stage in front of an audience, um, you know, we all have the experience of in your local scene. You know, you you, know, you play your songs. Maybe you develop a following amongst your friends and your family. Then it brings out and you start getting some other people showing up and someone tells two friends and you get a little thing going. But when you're in a local scene, it's like you're the you're the king of that little world and it's very comforting. But then it's that huge leap to take that step out of it when you head out on the road. Now, you know, for me, I grew up playing music with my best friends. We still do. But it's like, you know, they never pursued music professionally. But, you know, we could have just it didn't work out for them. But when I got this gig at when I thought I should probably get a real job at 30 is when I first went out on the road 
uh, with Dave Davies. And that was just happenstance because we happened to be yeah. a group of Johnny Bravos that all fit the suit and we knew the songs and we were available for, you know, to go out and work, right? But when I went out with this guy, you know, who had been in one of the biggest rock bands ever and had already had this insane career, when I went out and realized that, you know, we're playing in the middle of nowhere, but you're playing on this song that everybody relates to, it's a very powerful feeling. You know, it's hard... It's hard to imagine why anybody would ever want to give up being on stage because it's very intoxicating to have that feeling of you are directly communicating something. It doesn't matter that I didn't write, you really got me, or all day or all the night. Like Dave's playing this riff that he's played a thousand times and people are yeah. just going nuts over it. And it's very powerful. And, you know, when Jeffrey's talking about, like, I'm speaking to you, that Springsteen correlation is exactly true. It's like, you know, I've been to enough Bruce shows to know that. I mean, you can't fake that. You know, I mean, he, he, you know, for everything else that he's accomplished and for all the other things about his career that maybe people go like, I don't like this or this phase. Yeah, or it's like, I don't want to so I'm talking about the yeah. pure thing about him as a guy who was leading this huge band and directly going out to everybody in these barns that he plays where it's like, we're not done yet. And I don't worry, you're going to we're, we're still going to be playing the night for two more. It's like mm. he really does something with that. And I think, you know, when a singer songwriter you know, I the thing I like about Jeffrey's record is that the instrumentation is totally appropriate to what he's doing, and he has made records before with great players and great all that stuff. It's not like this is a new thing for him, but what I like about it is that it's very appropriate to what he's doing, but it at no point ever gets in the way of a very distinctive, rich voice or his role in it. Like, he's not a guest star on his own record. He's got these great musicians, they're very supportive, and he's got this fantastic situation, but he comes through, and that song is exactly right. This is just as powerful sitting two feet away from him in this chair as it would be listening to the album or seeing him play it you know, with those guys at his gig. Well, uh, I'll just toss in one other point of view on the, the interpretation, which is the idea, like well, I love when you said that, it, that you, the song is like a crime scene, and That's a good it, one. <laughs> it made me think of something in this documentary I saw with Martin Scorsese, and he was talking about one of the things that makes a great filmmaker is that they're a great smuggler, that they somehow, through some other format, smuggle this other subversive idea into what they're doing, whether it's through the imagery or like something that they they're telling one story, but there's this other thing that they're trying to tell you that if you already know or you get it, you're going to get it. And there's some, I think there's something like we, we write song, we create stuff as artists, especially I think for songwriters, we create something because we really want to express something. But I think there's also, there's a part of us that does want to smuggle in this secret, like that there's something that when you're talking about what is it that makes the song, the song that really defines the artist, it's this like that they they can't even help themselves, but they're betraying themselves in some way. Like the guy comes back to the scene of his crime and can't help but leave some clue for that one detective who is going to be like, oh, I know that song is, I know why that song isn't just Allison isn't just Allison. It's something else. It tells us something else that we're going to be learning for the whole rest of your career. And you're going to be avoiding telling us everything you're the thing you're avoiding telling us the guilty secret is that thing that 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 what uh my friend walt vincent the producer calls the tug in mm. a song it's <laughs> like the the uh the antimatter in the song there's yeah. yeah i mean you can see that very clearly in some people's writing i think it's a continuation i you know i think that at least this is my interpretation of it 
you know, I think that Pete Townsend has been writing about a version of himself, real or imagined, or what parts of it you really no one is better at it. Even Pete would admit this. No one's better at it than Ray Davies. I mean, mm-hmm. he has crafted like he is an amazing observer of human, you know, foibles and conditions, but you very rarely get you don't know most people don't really know Ray. I mean, you know, people can write confessional lyrics and be very upfront. It's like it's not hard to listen to a record where someone says, well, I made this during my terrible divorce and my drug addiction period, and you can tell what it's about. And then some people are so obvious with it that they make a point of going the other way. It's like, well, you know, that's not about my ex-wife. It's like, right, except for the song that you wrote where you say her name. (laughs) I mean, I get it. It's like people want the out clause. But some some writers I just wrote your dictionary while I was getting divorced. Right. But some some writers have the ability to leave, like you say, leave a clue. And and it may take a while to it may take a while to blossom or develop. And it's also, you know, I see I, I see people who, you know, the arc of some of a songwriter's journey, you know, sometimes songs themselves have it's actually a very touching moment in this interlude on this Ray Davies record. It's like he talks about having a conversation just before he moved out of New Orleans with Alex Chilton and they'd become friends and Alex is talking about how songs don't ever age for him. Like he can sing a song that he wrote when he was a teenager or in his 20s, if he chooses to, and still connect with that and not be bothered by the fact that all these other decades have passed in between. And you know, for anybody that is lucky enough to have a lengthy career as a writer, you will find yourself flashing back to, like, you know, I can't... Like, I can't believe I'm still playing this song I wrote when I was 19. But well, I want to just, again, thank you for being here thank and encourage everyone to, to find out more about uh, what you're doing with Wild Honey. If you live in L.A., it's one of the things that makes living in L.A. great is that you have this resource that this thing happens every year. This year I'm going to get to go. I've, I've missed too many of them. That's awesome. And, yeah, and... people can go find us. Uh, there's several uh, Facebook pages and also a YouTube channel. I mean, you just punch in a search for Wild Honey and it comes up. Thanks for listening to Radio 8 Ball. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher, and check out our website and the links provided for info about past and future shows on the Radio 8 blog, our ongoing Patreon campaign, and where you can download our Radio 8 Ball app that allows you to engage the Pop Oracle directly in the form of every song ever performed in the history of Radio 8 Ball. I hope today's musical divination brings and brought the sync to you wherever you are. And until next time... I'm your host, Andras Jones, wishing you lots of spine-tingling synchronicities, connections with the natural world, and all the inspiration you can handle. It's the Radio Show. It's a good show. Aloha and welcome aboard Hawaiian Airlines. Hawaii flies with us. Now, for a limited time, new Hawaiian Airlines World Elite MasterCard card members can earn 60,000 bonus Hawaiian miles after qualifying purchases. That's 60,000 bonus miles closer to the warmth and traditions of Hawaii. Apply today at HawaiianAirlines.com. Offer subject to credit approval. See application terms and conditions for complete details. Credit cards issued by Barclays Bank Delaware.